Welcome to the Achiever Network podcast. I'm Sharon Kybel, your host and founder of AchieverNet, education for today. We focus on success strategies, business building and performance and productivity programs. And at AchieverNet, we're building a community of extraordinary achievers and I am super thrilled to have you join us today. Please enjoy the AchieverNet podcast. Welcome to episode six of the Achiever Network podcast. And I am super excited today to have Derek McManus with us. Now, Derek McManus is the founder of the Australian Centre for Human Durability. A little bit of background, I met Derek uh, way back in 1997. So it was certainly a very long time ago now. (laughs) (laughs) And that was three years after a significant event in Derek's life. And he'll share with you the details shortly. But Derek was shot 14 times in a siege. He was a Star Force officer with the Special Task and Rescue Group of the South Australian Police. And his background included being a sniper, a recovery diver and a counter-terrorist officer. Now, this particular day, he was involved in a siege, shot 14 times. What was I doing that day? I was actually reporting the news. So I was a journalist on Breakfast Radio at the time. And I distinctly remember this day because I was reporting on this very incident. And so I took a a particularly strong interest in what was taking place because it was absolutely horrific. Um, Now, 14 times he was laying on the ground. He should have been dead. But he used strategies to be able to keep himself alive and not only keep himself alive on the day, but to recover from that in an incredibly short period of time, psychologically as well as physically, to go on to help other people to have strategies to believe in themselves, to have confidence in themselves and to be able to tap into their own human durability. So today we have Derek with us. He's a keynote speaker, a training and development facilitator of fantastic programs on human durability. Welcome, Derek. So excited to have you with us. Sensational, Sharon. I I love that story. I actually didn't realise that you were a journalist and reporting on the time. Yeah. At the time, so yeah, yeah, that's a nice little insight for me as well. <laughs> yeah. Look, it was um, a pretty uh, amazing incident because how many hours were you there on on the ground? Uh, I was lying on the ground for three hours. The siege itself went for forty one hours. Uh, there were two thousand rounds of ammunition fired between the offender and the police. Um, Did you say 2,000 rounds? Yeah, I I do gloss over those details because I'm so used to them. Uh, But yes, 2,000 rounds. Uh, And that's a conservative estimate uh, as to how many rounds were fired. We don't know exactly how many he fired, but they sort of did a a guesstimate as to what it was. Um, And it was 41 hours. I mean, people remember things like the Waco, Texas siege and all those sorts of things. Overseas, they talk about the siege in South Australia uh, because it made international news. Mm. Uh, one of the nurses that were treating me uh, when I was in the Royal Adelaide Hospital, uh, while the siege was still on, so I was taken to hospital, I was operated on for six hours and taken into uh, intensive care and, and I was talking to the nurse as I was going through my recovery. Uh, he was Irish and his family in Ireland were phoning him and asking him whether it was safe to be in South Australia. 
that's how much impact it had internationally. Wow. Yeah, look, I think everybody was glued to their radios at the time because it was such a long period of time. And um, for those of you that don't know the incident, this um, the background was the this particular offender was locked in his home and, yeah, he was just shooting and there was no way of being able to get to the house. Um, and so there was all of this vacant space around the house and he was holed up in the attic of yeah. the house and shooting anything and anyone that even tried to get near to the house. Okay, so a little bit more insight there. Uh, the property was a rural property, so it was a farming property. So around his house there was orchards, there was vineyards and there was open space and a big dam. Um, so to get to the house, it was, the, the as you described, the vacant space. Uh, we were arresting him to bring him to court because he'd failed to turn up in court uh, for 197 counts of fraud. Ooh. Now, that's not something you normally associate with violence, but we knew the person's history. So we knew there was a potential. Um, and uh, it wasn't that he was shooting directly at everybody. Uh, there was one period where he obviously shot me. There was a, a period where he took direct shots at somebody else, another star group officer who was outside the house. Um, and then for the three hours that I was in the house, oh, sorry, um, You never outside, got to the house. <laughs> yeah, right outside the house. I was actually up against a wall outside the house. But while he was in the house, yes, he got up into the attic. But he was actually shooting randomly through the roof in a 360-degree arc. Now, nobody realised this at the time, but the effect that it had, and I think it was just collateral bonus for him, is that every time he was shooting in a 360-degree arc and somebody went to move and bullets came in their direction just randomly, um, they've gone, oh, my gosh, he knows uh, I'm out here, bullets coming in my direction, I can't move. Um, so it, it really was just one of those confusing situations that you just couldn't take the risk. Mm, mm. Um, and so the guys that I was with... Uh, they were pinned down because of his behaviours. They couldn't get to me. Uh, we had to call for backup. Backup came from town. Now, we were the response team. If something had happened to any other member of the public or another police officer, my team was the response team, and we would have been there within 45 minutes max uh, because it was out in the Barossa Valley, so we had to get from Adelaide there, and 45 minutes max, we would have been on the ground and responding to it. But the response team was now in trouble. We had to go to the backup team who were out doing training and they were training on the other side of Adelaide. Uh, and they had to get back to Adelaide, re regroup and then get out to the Barossa Valley. So that's why I was lying on the ground for three hours. Three hours. My mates couldn't get to me immediately because it was too dangerous. The response team had to get out to that location and then the response team were only on the ground for about 15 minutes before they came in. Um, and no two ways about it, they risked their lives to come in and get mm, me. Mm. Part of their briefing before they came in was, we don't know whether Derek's dead or alive, we haven't heard from him for three hours. You may be going in to pick up Derek, you may be going in to pick up a body. Mm. It's a very dangerous situation. We can't tell you you have to go in. Um, so if you don't want to go in, now's the time to put your hand up and say this is too dangerous. Wow. Every one of those guys stepped up to the plate and said no. This is what I signed up for. I want to go in. Yeah, People that, behind them were amazing. arguing, saying, mm. hey, listen, I've had more experience. I've been in the section longer. I want to be going in. These guys lined up to risk their lives to come and save mine. Mm. So mm. heroes, absolute heroes. And 
uh, extraordinary because, you know, here you are on the ground and you're motionless for three hours because you've been shot 14 times with entry and exit points right through your body. Yep. Um, some of the things that you have gone through while you were on the ground, take us through a little background on that just before we get into our, what you know, the, the tips yeah. that we can gain because yeah. yeah. there's so, a lot from, from what you went through while you were just absolutely. So, motionless. Absolutely. Uh, we went up to the door, we knocked on the door, he didn't answer. I went down the side of the house looking for somewhere we could enter without... Uh, causing too much damage or uh, causing us a, a delay and we could get in there more efficiently, more safely. Um, as I went to look at this sliding door, he saw me, he actually fired 18 times in less than five seconds, hit me 14 times in less than five seconds. One bullet went through my left forearm, broke the bone, the radius in two places, uh, severed the artery, damaged nerve, stretched tendons there. A piece of shrapnel went into my right wrist severed an artery in my right wrist, damaged nerves in there, two bullets into my stomach, I lost 30 centimetres of small intestine, 15 centimetres of large intestine, two bullets into my left thigh, uh, they missed the femoral artery, the largest artery in the body by the width of a piece of paper, according oh. to the doctor, that's the doctor's words. Uh, another bullet went into my right Achilles tendon, uh, took out 80% of the thickness of my Achilles tendon, um, and as I sit here and talk to you today, I still only have 20% of the thickness for that Achilles tendon still holding together. Um, another bullet went in behind my right knee, just needed a, a, a few stitches in there. And there are other bits of bullet or shrapnel that hit my body in different places and caused damage, but not major damage like the other ones. But then I was lying on the ground for three hours bleeding uh, with that damage while my mates were struggling physically and mentally uh, struggling with themselves. How do we get into Derek? Is it safe? Uh, and I've had conversations with them. That conversation, that uh, dilemma they had would have been so traumatic mm, for them. They're, mm. they're good mates on the ground. I can just imagine what it would be like. Um, I was then uh, lying on the ground for three hours, monitoring my body, bleeding, monitoring my body, uh, closing down. Um, I felt my blood supply going lower and lower uh, because my uh, first aid training that I'd had beforehand. It's fairly extensive in that section. Um, and so I felt the body's physiology changing. Uh, as the blood supply gets lower, the body naturally reroutes blood to the core. So I felt my arms going cold, my legs going cold as the blood was drained from them and pumped into the core of the body. At one point, uh, I realized that I was uh, down to the absolute core and blood was probably just going to my uh, lungs, my kidneys, my uh, heart and my brain. Uh, and then at one point my vision got so low that even, sorry, my blood supply got so low that even my vision closed down. Mm, um, mm. And that turned to an absolutely pristine white. Uh, wow. A lot of theories behind what that means to lots of different people. But for me, it was just this rationalization that there's not enough blood going to my brain if I get out of this alive, I may have brain damage. That's what went through my mind at that oh, time. Jeepers, just to add to the uh, everything that you were going through, extraordinary. Yeah, mm. so it's at that point that I actually started fighting my hardest. Um, at the, up until that time, I had maintained my um, calm, my shock, slowed down my heart rate, slowed down my breathing. 
um, and actually monitored my body and made sure it was slow and calm. But at the time my vision closed down, that's when I started moving my body the little bit that I could just to give myself confidence I still had something left. Mm. Uh, and I started speaking out loud to myself. Mm. I said, Derek, don't give up. Derek, keep on fighting. Uh, fortunate things happen if our minds are open to seeing opportunities and possibilities. Two rifle shots were fired from outside the house back towards the house. When I heard those two rifle shots, I knew it was my mates from Starry's on their way to come and get me. The cavalry was coming. And and that's exactly how I saw it. You know, there's more stories that I can go into, but um, when I heard those two shots, there was a dump of adrenaline in my body, endorphins from my brain, my vision kicked back to absolutely perfect. The boys came in in a truck 15 minutes after these two shots. Now, I talk about these time frames because that's what I do as a cop. We mm. keep track of time. So I was monitoring these things. Uh, but 15 minutes after those two rifle shots, the boys came in at a truck and uh, they opened up on the house in automatic fire from submachine guns and, and rifles. Uh, the shooter started firing a lot more and it was exactly as you said. It sounded like the cavalry coming. I remember watching cowboys and Indians. The cavalry... The, um, the, the, the circle of wagons is just about to be overrun by the Indians and that's what it felt like. And the cavalry comes over the hill, mm. this blast of gunfire and saves the day. And that's exactly what I felt like while I was on the ground. Mm. Um, they got me out of there. They got me to Bill Griggs, um, the doctor that treated me. Um, he actually said, and I had this conversation with him months after the shooting. I went in to see him just to thank him for what he did and find out from his perspective what it was like because it must have been horrendous for him. Uh, but he actually said, Derek, when I first got to you, I didn't know whether you were dead or alive. There was no colour, there was no movement, there was no breathing, there was no sound. I thought you were probably dead. But you took this last gasping breath and I thought, well, I may as well at least have a look. Which I thought was rather generous of him. <laughs> but what he didn't tell me was that he was standing in direct line of fire. Bullets were whizzing around his ears. So it wasn't just a thought process of I should try and save this guy's life or shouldn't I? It was should I risk my life? to try and save this guy's life. His commitment to that job, absolute hero. The Ambos, the uh, paramedics that were standing with him, absolute heroes, they committed to treating me for 10 minutes in direct line of fire. Mm, mm. Um, it, it is quite incredible and you know, just the, the extraordinary level of commitment and bravery, courage that you have in that kind of role. I think you know, the, the normal civilian is totally in awe of how you put yourself into such extraordinary situations as part of your job. But then it becomes more than a job in a situation like that where you have to make decisions in split seconds. You need to consider not only what's going to happen to you but what's going to happen to those people around you. I just find this an incredible story and we could talk for hours we on could. it. Um, so what I'd, to, to pick oh, up on yep. what you've just said there... Um, this sort of occupation needs to become more than a job, as you said. It's more than a job. It's a mm. passion. You mm. love doing what you do, but you see that it's for a bigger purpose. So it's not just a job where I'm enjoying myself or I'm achieving something. There is a bigger purpose to fulfilling this. Um, and you can't do this sort of job to those extremes unless you have trained to the extreme to be able to perform it. Yeah. And those extremes have taught me how to make split-second decisions, how to analyse a whole heap of information and process it down to a split-second decision of do I act, don't I act, 
Um, do I shoot? Don't I shoot? Do I take this person's life? Are there other options available to me? But it's extreme training and, and exposing yourself to those conditions on a regular basis where you get to go through that process and be comfortable with that process mm. that it is a part of your operating environment. And it really has become part of who you are because, you know, that was a long time ago, this scenario. We're talking back in 1997. That was, um, it seems like only yesterday to me because I remember it so very, very clearly, uh, and I'm sure you do too. Um, but you've lived your life from that day to uphold those principles of commitment and uh, just making yourself an extraordinary human, not just as you were on that day, but for every day. So just to give you a little bit of background, uh, if you're sitting in your car or listening, um, Derek is, is somebody who uh, just for fun will ride up uh, mountains and think that that's fun when most of us gasp our <laughs> last breath, you know, kind of right down the bottom somewhere. And, you know, he uh, next week is jumping out of a plane uh, for a good cause for one of the, the charities here. Just to be and clear, I'm going to have a parachute <laughs> when I drop out of that plane, just to be clear. <laughs> but you do push, push yourself an extraordinary amount and, you know, you continue to put yourself in... Um, environments and situations that that most of us wouldn't even contemplate doing and that durability and resilience and so on that you had on that day many many years ago is something that you continue to uphold and it's it's your passion not only to live and breathe it yourself but also to teach it to others and to help others to you know gain those same skills so I'd, I'd love to have you share with us um, I'm, I'm just going to pick up on what you were talking about there, this, this passion for going out and doing the extremes. Um, lots of people say that I must be a, a lover of risk and um, I must be a risk junkie and all those sorts of things. And there's no two ways about it. I do some risky things in my life and I still do. Uh, my bike riding it's a gene, I... isn't it? Don't they reckon that's a gene? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I haven't heard that. I'll, yeah, I'll have to look, look that it up, up now. Look it up. Um, but, you know, I ride up hills, but I come down even faster and just love the speed. You know, on my push bike, I've been to 94.6 kilometres an hour. Wow. Um, on my push bike, coming down hills, jump out of aircraft uh, and do all sorts of other extreme things, as, mm. you, as you described. Um, but I actually don't see myself as a risk taker. Um, and, and this is something that was in place prior to the shooting and going into Star Group. Um, I'm not a risk taker. I see myself as a risk manager, not a risk taker. I take a look at what the risk is and I say to myself, do I have the experience? Do I have the training? Do I have the support? Do I have the infrastructure? Am I able to handle the worst consequence if that worst consequence does happen? Because it doesn't matter how much risk mitigation you uh, put in place, the risk is still there. Mm. So we have to be able to deal with not just the fact that we are making that choice, but we also have to anticipate what the consequence might be, both good and bad, and say, if either of those happen, can I actually deal with it? Um, and going through that thought process, which is what we will talk about in just a moment, um, gives you two levels of, com of comfort. Two levels of comfort. Uh, the first level of comfort is actually, if the worst happens, yes, I have the team, I have the support, I have the infrastructure, we can actually handle this. And when you put it into a business context, that also includes, do I have the finances? Is my family going to be able to handle this? All those sorts of things as well. 
Um, and if you actually do the analysis and you say, actually, if the worst happens, we can handle it, it means that you'll actually go into that challenge more confidently. Mm. You're not just going in and saying, let's see how this works out. I hope it works out well. We'll probably be able to do it. You're actually able to say, we can handle it. Let's have a real crack at this. The other level of comfort is that you look at it and you go, oh my gosh, if that happens, it's going to destroy my business, it's going to destroy my family, it'll destroy my future, my career, whatever it might be. If it's going to destroy it and I can't handle it, you should be very comfortable in saying, I'm going to back away from it. Now that doesn't mean you don't do it ever. It just may mean you go away and you get some other uh, support, some other training, some other uh, information. You get somebody else in, you find some more finances to give you the ability to manage it. Mm. But you should be comfortable if you can't deal with it at that time, step away Mm. and just relax and say, no, I know it will destroy me. I'm not going to take that risk. Risk manager, not a risk taker. I love that takeaway. That's such a fantastic definition of, of how we should go into our life, just to think about things really in depth, in advance. Um, you know, we're always being told that we need to plan, but I think, you know, how you've described it, it it's it's looking at the, the ultimate impact that that scenario is having on you and being a risk manager is fantastic. You're looking at it from so many different angles. You're looking at it from so many different perspectives to be able to define whether this is really for you and yeah, whether absolutely. it's a decision you want so to make. So I took that risk management approach not just to me but to the other people it's going to impact mm. as well. So prior to the shooting and when I first went into Star Group, um, I actually went and had a conversation with my wife that I'm going into a job I'm going to become a sniper, I'm going to become a diver. And diving is a very dangerous mm. uh, occupation in dark water where you can't see where you're going. Um, and I'm going to train with the SAS in counter-terrorism. So I actually had a conversation with my wife about the fact I may be shot and injured, I may be shot and killed. Now, if I die, what's life going to be like for you? What's going to be the impact on you? Will you be able to go on? Will you be able to support me? knowing that this is one of the risks. So it's not just how we deal with it, it's our families, our Mm. teams, those other people that it may impact. Um, Now, people say, my gosh, you had that conversation. Cops say, my gosh, you had that conversation. Um, And a lot of people look at choices they're making and the consequences of it, and we're very comfortable talking about the things we can deal with. But then there are those extremes that we go, oh my gosh, I know that can happen, but I'm really not comfortable talking about it because I don't know how I'll handle it. Um, So I'm just going to ignore it. I'm aware it's there, but I'm not going to talk about it too much. Now, these are the ones that I believe if they do happen, and then maybe the one percenters, you know, in an occupational health safety uh, risk management model, they are the one percenters, the very low risk of happening, but the massive impact, right? They are the ones that will destroy your life. And if you haven't averted your mind to it, then when it happens, you will be overwhelmed with emotion. Mm. And when your emotion goes high, your rational thinking goes low, and that's when you do things that you're not proud of. You make the mm. statements that you're not proud of, rather than being on a plane where, or in a space where your emotions and your rational thinking are on an even plane, and you can make plans, you can make decisions, you can get creative. Uh, but when the emotions go high and the rational thinking goes low, that's when we're overwhelmed, um, and that's when our lives are at high risk of being mm, destroyed mm. by the things that we really know 
might happen. Yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Look, we've, we haven't even started on our three <laughs> points yet and how much have we gained already. Yeah. Um, so, look, I do want to tap into uh, some of what you have definitely taken away over the years because you've had to reinvent yourself uh, out ag- again from being a Star Force officer and your absolute commitment and passion is helping others to... Uh, benefit from what you've learned from your experiences and I know you've got three tips for us today so I'd I'd like to share what your your tips are. What is your first tip that we can take away on how we as individuals can be durable, can be resilient? Okay so I I looked at what I did um, for the shooting um, and people have heard my story and they've gone, oh my gosh, you've got to come and tell our corporates about that. They've got to get the story. And I've gone, seriously? I don't get it. Uh, because the way I approached it was, I knew the choices I was making and the consequences that might come of it. Um, and my overview of the shooting is, I went to work, I got shot, I fell down, I got up, I got better, I went back to work. And isn't that what everybody would want to do? And ultimately, if you're passionate about what you do, then that's what would happen. But most people become overwhelmed and hit those risks and they shy away from it. Um, so I've looked at how I prepared myself, my family, uh, everything else. And I, people spoke about me being this resilient person. And for a long time, yes, I embraced the resilience. Yes, it was, I bounced back. But then I've looked at it and I thought, you know something, it's more than bouncing back. I'd actually prepared myself. I had put contingency plans in place that said, if I do happen to get shot, and I don't die, what do I want to do as a perfect response to that? And so this is why I now talk about going beyond resilience to sustaining optimal performance. And that is the definition of human durability, going beyond resilience to sustaining optimal performance. It's about accepting responsibility for the choices we are making and the possible consequences of them, and then saying, if they do happen, am I able to handle it? Is my team able to handle it? Are my family able to handle it as well? Um, And then saying, if it does happen to me, what is the perfect response to that? Now, perfection sits on one end of a continuum. Perfection is something that we would all love to attain, and Mm -hmm. it's what we aspire to. Um, And if everything goes right, yes, you can attain perfection. But when things are going wrong that we don't have control over, sometimes we'll end up down the other end of the continuum where it's absolute chaos. We're not in control of everything. Everything's out of order. And what I've said to myself is, what's my absolute perfect response? This would be perfection. But if I end up down this other end of the continuum in chaos, what should my behaviours be down that end? What to can get I, you back to perfection. What can I do to influence those circumstances to get me back along that continuum closer to perfection? Now, I don't have to have perfection, and I think we rarely get perfection in our lives, but we've got to know what it looks like so that we've got something to aim for. Mm, I love that. What a, what a great mental model to work on, you know, because that is life. Life doesn't always work as we've planned. No. We certainly need to do the planning, but we've yep. also got to plan for when life doesn't work to plan. So Absolutely. I love that. What a great mental yeah, model. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, I, I think everything that we start in life has a catalyst. Either the catalyst is something's happened outside of our control and something's happened to us, or there's a catalyst within us that we want to achieve something. Um, and that achievement I've termed as our vision, but the vision is just the outcome you want from your actions you're about to take. Now, we always 
take actions because we see there's an opportunity to get something better in our lives, right? And I call that the bright, shiny things. We're chasing those bright, mm. shiny things and, and there's altruistically. there's a lot out there. There's tons <laughs> of them out there. But we always have this vision of the great outcome we want. And lots of people just go, there's a great outcome, I'm going to go and do it. And they don't think of what the negative consequences are. They say, well, I want that great outcome. Other people have achieved it, so I should be able to do it too. And they don't think of those negatives. But I say that we've got to understand the outcome we want and then accept responsibility for chasing the shiny things, but also accepting responsibility for the challenges that we might face. So have your vision, but know what the opportunities are and the challenges are, and prepare yourself for both extremes. Mm, mm, great. Love it, love it. Uh, you've, you've got another tip here that I'd love to go into because... Um, the the conversations that you had with yourself, the conversations that you had with your team on that day, I'm sure were very special. Um, yes. You want to talk about conversations Absolutely. and the impact that has on durability and Absolutely. the underlying the underlying philosophy behind all of the human durability is that we've got to have open, honest, confronting conversations with ourselves, with our team, with those people that we're going to impact by our actions. Um, about the reality of the situation. And it's just about having a open, honest, confronting conversation about reality. If we can do that, then we can prepare ourselves properly for what might happen to us. But if we don't have that confronting conversation about the realities, then we will be distracted um, and we won't be able to respond in exactly the way we want to. Uh, Nelson Mandela says that one and, and cannot... And sorry, that we've got to just allude to the fact that that little puppy was uh, my puppy sitting under the bed uh, trying to have a conversation, perfectly timed. <laughs> <laughs> she's obviously recognised some risk out there and she's letting us know about it. She is helping us to prepare for the future. <laughs> so, so sorry, I've, I've no, taken you right. off track there, but um, I, I love this concept of open, honest and confronting conversations because we like to think that we're having those with ourselves, but actually we don't. You know, having that confronting conversation around uh, what we're chasing, as we discussed before, that can be really hard because if you do see a bright, shiny object, you know, you kind of discount and you undermine that part of yourself that says this isn't really aligned to your true path here, you know, mm. and you, you, you dismiss it. You don't, you know, you push it back into the background instead of actually listening and allowing that confronting voice to be heard that yeah, is yeah. actually going to save you from a whole lot of pain. Yeah, absolutely. So I've got six steps that take us to a higher self-esteem or a higher level of resilience. So you've got to get to resilient before you can move on to human durability. So I've got six steps to uh, resilience. Um, and it's exactly what you said. That's and, I, and I've now forgotten the train of what you were just saying. I was just saying how hard it is to have confronting conversations oh. with ourselves, yeah, <laughs> let absolutely. alone with others. So that is one of the parts of uh, the resilience model as well. It's about um, taking a look at what we are great at and what we're not great at, and when we recognise that there are big challenges, not just hiding it in the background somewhere, but saying to ourselves, actually... How have I managed those sorts of risks in the past? What have I done to overcome those sorts of risks? Um, and then being prepared to be confronting with ourselves, do I actually have the skills to manage those worst outcomes?
Mm-hmm. And can I uh, get your opinion on how do you have a confronting some conversation with another person? So let's say you're, you have a relationship with a work colleague or a business associate, associate or even someone in your personal life and you, you recognise that there's a scenario that does need to be dealt with. What are your tips on having an honest, open and confronting conversation? How do you go about that with somebody else? Um, it, it is actually a challenge uh, because most people don't like having these confronting conversations. Certainly when I had the conversation with my wife, um, I think it was a little bit overwhelming for her mm-hmm. because she was aware of it, but she'd never spoken about it before. Mm. Um, this comes back to a conversation we were having just recently uh, about being authentic or being congruent with who you are. If you are speaking to someone from the heart, genuinely concerned about what might impact them, and you come across congruently with concern for them, the conversation is going to be a lot more comfortable and easier to have. It's also about understanding what the impact might be on them when you raise this uh, topic. Because when it's confronting, people will either rebel, they'll deny, they'll, they'll do all those sorts of things. Um, and, and, and it is a matter of finding a way to keep that conversation going so that they can be comfortable with it as well. A lot of people say, I need to have confronting conversations with my staff about their performance. How do I have open, honest, confronting conversations with them and get them to do the work I want them to do? Um, it's not about beating people over the head. It's not about being aggressive. It's about being uh, compassionate, understanding, um, and considerate mm. about what the impact of that conversation is going to be on them. Now, sometimes it, it, it will be better to broach the subject with someone and say, hey, listen, we need to have a conversation about this. And when they rebel and go away, you let them go away. And then you approach them again another couple of days later and say, hey, listen, I'd like to actually follow up on that. Have you thought about that conversation? oh, listen, I've really been overwhelmed. I'm I'm not sure how to handle it. But because they've got some mental preparation, they're feeling a little bit more comfortable with it now, they're probably willing to explore it just that little bit deeper. And then if they have to run away again, and it depends on the urgency. Um, If this conversation is something that is absolutely urgent, you may have to push and say, no, we have to have it now. And certainly in the star group environment, when we're going into a hostile environment where there could be offenders, uh, willing to shoot us, then you know, we don't have time to say, no, give me 10 minutes to think about this. <laughs> that time um, and peace goes out the window. <laughs> yeah, so it depends on the urgency of the conversation you need to have. But if it's, if, if it's one, with one of your colleagues at work and it's something that we need to talk about, something that may be happening in a week's time or two weeks' time or a month's time, or we have to talk about the contingencies that if this business fails, how's it going to impact on our families? They're things that you can gently get into over a period of time. So it's about being considerate and understanding of what the impact of the conversation is going to be mm. on those people, working out the urgency of the conversation. I love that. Those those two tips that you've given us are just extraordinary. So um, I'm certainly going to take that away, uh, that you need the intention. So it's the two eyes for me, the intention first, yeah. and then to be aware of the impact, to phrase things and be kind and compassionate being, and also manage the timing uh, which is considerate of the impact that you're having on yep. others, so intention and impact, which is brilliant. Um, okay, so it, just going off that, you've talked about having confronting conversations with others. 
and also with our, ourselves you know for you on a daily basis let's say you've got a, a particularly daunting project it might be a marketing project that you have for your business oh which... you know me too well <laughs> <laughs> i share my, your pain on my, that my challenges come in different forms these days <laughs> yeah. So how do you how do you have that confronting conversation with yourself over perhaps a scenario that is out of your own comfort zone you know so it's a skill set that you don't have what's what's the process that you would go through on that um, for that process I would keep to what I call my five drivers for success um, and those five drivers the first one is maintaining a sense of optimism knowing that there's something greater out there mm-hmm. and as a result of your efforts you're going to be able to achieve it. Uh, the second one is believing in your ability to influence that outcome. Um, and most of the things that are going to happen in my life, I am able to influence, maybe not by myself, but uh, driver number five will talk about where we can get extra influence um, to to get outcomes we want. But it, So it's optimism. The second one is influence, believing in our ability to influence it. Because if you have no influence over it, mm. those things are out of your control, you've got to take a completely different strategy. Mm. Um, the third driver is passion. If you've got a real passion for something, you know what you want and you know why you want it, then you will push through those barriers. You will mm-hmm. overcome those barriers. Your passion will take you through. Uh, the fourth driver is planning. Um, and it's about putting plans in place. That, For the driver's model, the planning basis is just simply some idea of what you're going to deal with, some idea of how you're going to deal with it, right? And it really is as simple as that. Um, and, and that's about doing the contingency planning and going into this model that I now have for human durability. Uh, but the fifth one, most important to responding to your question, is support. If I've got a massive challenge, I look at my friends, my network, my family, and find out where I can get my support. Uh, and this is where I get into things like mastermind groups and, and find out other uh, professionals and experts and who can I network with to actually give me the support to help me overcome those challenges. Uh, because we probably have most of the resources we need within ourselves, but quite often we just doubt our own ability. Mm. But when someone says, this is what you need to do and this is how you can do it, you go, I'd never even thought of that. There's extraordinary power in the masterminds. It's an Absolutely. incredible uh, thing to be part of a, a brain's trust. What, a, and what an amazing five-step process. So I can see that that would work. So if we take that back to your marketing, so uh, you're optimistic that you can nail this marketing beast, that you have the ability to influence the outcome of it, that you are passionate about getting this under control this year right now to assist you to grow your business that you have got a plan in place and that you know who you're going to see when you're going to do things how you're going to do things and you've got the right people lined up to support you I can see that it's not going to be anywhere near as confronting love it that's just brilliant and and it's nowhere near as confronting it doesn't always make it easier to happen yeah but when you understand the process you go actually I can work through that. Yes, that's and right. it maintains that sense of optimism. I can work through this. Mm. It's still hard work. Mm. No two ways about it. Um, but every new challenge is always going to be new, uh, harder mm. than just following those old habits that we've always been in. Um, Love so it. 
I, I do find my marketing a big challenge because it's new to me. I've never... Policemen don't necessarily need to market themselves. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many more, more uh, skills that you need now <laughs> outside of the Star Force. <laughs> um, so that, that's fantastic. So we've had two really incredible uh, guidelines today about human durability, about how to go beyond resilience and how to plan for risk and manage that in advance and how to have open honest and confronting conversations and what is your your third takeaway uh, for for us listening in um the third takeaway is that adversity is the biggest killer of creativity we'll ever encounter and we find adverse times when we haven't properly prepared for them when things are going out of control they're not happening exactly the way we would like to um, and that adversity starts to overwhelm us. And once we start getting overwhelmed, that's when I talk about our emotions going high and our rational thinking going low. So in a normal day, our emotions and our rational thinking sit on an even plane. And we can contemplate, we can plan, we can discuss, we can get mm. creative, we can think outside the square, and we can take our time to do all these things. But as soon as we start getting overwhelmed, we go into panic, we go into mm. fight and flight mode. Right, and we take the first action that is open to us that we are aware of. So when our emotions are high and our rational thinking is low, that's when we take these actions. We go, oh my gosh, this worked for me in the past. I'm going to try it again because this might happen, might work for me this time. And we take actions or we say things that we really aren't proud of. And we know better, but in those moments, we can't get creative. Now, it's not about saying we don't have emotion. Right, and we should rule emotion out of our lives and all the rest of it. For me, going into star group, going into these environments where I'm not fully in control and I'm relying on uh, assessing the behaviours of other people, I understand my emotions are going to go high when I get impacted by something that I'm not totally prepared for. But because of the training I've done, I'm able to go, oh my gosh, my emotions have gone high. Oh no, I have the skills and the emotions come back down very quickly and the rational thinking comes back up. And that's what we all need to do. Just have some idea of what we're going to deal with, some idea of how we're going to deal with it, which is that fourth step, uh, fourth step in the drivers. Uh, and if we have that some idea of how we're going to deal with it, our emotions will come down. We go, oh no, hang on, I do have some idea of how I'm going to manage this. And our emotions come down, our rational thinking comes back up. So if we can manage the adversity, right, and take the stress out of the adversity, our life becomes an awful lot easier. We can manage that adversity and manage the emotions either by training, right, and Star Group is obviously some massively intense training, but we can do that sort of training in our minds for our family, for our sport, for our business as well. We go through training scenarios for businesses, um, and so it's extrapolating that. Um, so that's one way of dealing with the adversity is just preparing ourselves, training ourselves for it. Another way is to just introduce some humour. And it's just about having a moment of lightheartedness. And throughout my story of the shooting, there are times where I am in the most adverse situations. And I have this bizarre thought. And when I'm talking to people at a keynote, um, I've got 2,000 people cracking up, laughing at me while I'm being shot 14 times mm. because of the thoughts that I'm having. having. It's not that I disregard risk, it's that I've done the training beforehand. The emotion comes back down, I'm able to have a moment of lightheartedness, the mind relaxes, the body relaxes, and we're able to see opportunities or possibilities outside the, outside the square. 
Um, the third way of dealing with the adversity is doing the planning beforehand. Um, and uh, the last way is sometimes it just takes somebody else to reach out and put their hand on your shoulder, depending how well you know each other, give each other a hug and say it's going to be all right. doesn't change the reality of the circumstances, but it changes you inside. Your mind relaxes, your body relaxes, and you go, oh, actually I've got some support here. Maybe there's something to be more optimistic about. Um, our emotions come down and the rational thinking comes back up. We see opportunities or possibilities that we don't see in the midst of the adversity. Uh, when we get into adverse times, that's when we get very, very tunnel vision mm. and we just focus on the problem. If we can relax in the middle of it, we do see those things just that little bit outside of that tunnel vision. Um, and some people go, how can you possibly do that? There are, there are mm. some tips there. There's some really good tips there because, you know, this is such a, a critical area to discuss in, in this day and age where we are being bombarded from every direction with stressors and, and things that, you know, cause life to become um, tougher and harder, you know, that, that we've got so much pressure on us, you know, financially and work-wise, you know, we've got um, enormous stresses in the modern age. So I think, you know, when you look at some of those tips that you've given us to be able to uh, look at, what is the humour in this? You know, how do I need to revisit my planning and look for just stepping it out in a logical way and, you know, coming to, a, again, a place of calm? Um, I think that's incredibly important because, you know, we do have these coping resources that get stretched to the limit that we're okay, 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 okay. And then it's just that little tiny incident yeah. that all of a sudden... It's like our whole world's fallen apart. And it might not be a major adversity. Sometimes it can be a oh, tiny little stressor little yeah. that, the, that the old creates the throwaway line of the, uh, the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so I think they're really good tips just to, you know, have in front of us to um, stop ourselves and to think and to get back to, well, you know, what is the next step I need to take? You know, uh, I think that's totally awesome. Um, you did talk a little bit about looking to manage your emotional response, that we need to level out that um, emotional response. So if you are feeling completely overwhelmed where you don't have that ability to compartmentalise your emotions, how do, how do you start if you're just completely out of kilter and you go, how do I stabilise? What do you do? So the prior to going into the shooting, I, I took a look at, if I get into a situation where everything is absolute chaos, how will I manage it? I knew there were four things that I needed to do in that moment. I need to control panic, um, not let panic take control over the situation. The best way to control panic is have some idea of what you're going to deal with, some idea of how you're going to deal with it. Yes, it's out of control, but oh my gosh, I've got some idea. Okay, so the panic comes down. We need to. Con I needed to control shock. That was one of the things that I needed to do. If I get shot... There's going to be bleeding, there's going to be movement of blood in the body um, and that causes shock. It gets drained away from the brain, it gets drained away from the peripherals. So I knew I needed to control shock in my body. But what I say to businesses is what's the shock effect on your business? When you go into that moment of getting overwhelmed, where are your resources pooled, where your focus is, but where do your resources really need to be to actually respond to it? So that's about controlling the shock response to it. Um, the third one was I needed to control my breathing and slow down my breathing. 
this is one of the most powerful things that we can do. Because once we start getting into that overwhelm, we start going short of breath. We start going really contracted in everything that we do. Um, and if we can actually breathe deeply, and there's a, a four-second square breathing process that I talk about, uh, four seconds in, hold for four seconds, out for four seconds, hold for four seconds, in for four seconds, and we just do that, um, that actually just... Um, re-oxygenates the blood. Yeah, and it can be quite meditational. Can't oh, it? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that happens is that when we re-oxygenate the blood, uh, the body starts going, oh, I've still got plenty of oxygen. I can actually re uh, uh, release this to the rest of the body and it allows it to go back to the brain because you're kind of relaxed. Um, and the, the fourth one was that I needed to slow down my heart rate. Mm. Um, and to slow down my heart rate, that was largely part of slowing down my breathing um, but I knew if the heart wasn't pumping as fast I wouldn't bleed as much um, and so that actually combined with controlling shock and my first aid response to it. Um, so so really you're using quite a lot of physical techniques to be able to manage the emotional response which is incredibly valuable. Yeah absolutely yeah. although I, I do, they are they are physical techniques, but they're controlled by our minds. Mm. Uh, and when we can calm our mind, we can then start looking outside the square. And how do we do that? Is the training, right? The training of ourselves, having those open, honest, confronting conversations about this is a reality. I've already thought about it. Don't have a massive plan, but I've got a thought about it. And if you've got some thought about it, it allows you to take a step forward rather than going into procrastination. I don't know how to deal with this. Yeah. Let me think about it for five seconds, five minutes, five hours, whatever yeah. it might and be. And I'm loving that because you've pre-thought through the chaos scenario. Yep. And so you've looked at what your emotional response is going to be potentially if you fall into that chaos. So you're already pre-prepared yep. if it does happen. So yeah, that's brilliant. The other thing I'm just going to mention very quickly is don't expect perfection of yourself. We know what perfection is, but we may end up down in chaos as long as you're able to influence yourself to get back towards the perfection, accept that. Yeah. You've had a good influence on a, a situation. Yeah, amazing. Well, um, we probably do need to wrap up for today, but I'm not letting you get away too easily, Derek, because this is you far too <laughs> interesting, that conversation. And uh, I know that, uh, you know, our... Beautiful listeners uh, are probably intrigued by your story, to say the least, but certainly inspired as well from the value that you've given us about how we can manage uh, to tap into our own level of resilience and optimism and durability. So if you were going to leave us with, with one thing, which is your star, star moment of what you've learned from your life, and what you would like to bless us with right now, what would that bonus tip be? Uh, listen, I, the bonus tip, and it's not really a bonus tip because I'm going to reflect back on the open, honest, confronting conversations. Uh, that's the underpinning philosophy behind all of this, but what I will add to it uh, is something I was going to mention before, and I think I only got halfway through it. Um, it's the Nelson Mandela quote. Nelson Mandela, we all admire that man for his patience, his perseverance, his understanding of other people. Um, but uh, I love hearing quotes and, and making the quotes work for me. Nelson Mandela said, one cannot prepare for the future while secretly pretending it's not going to happen. 
Now I reflect on that and I say that we all know we're making a choice, there are these things that could happen, but if we don't actually think about them and address them, then we're secretly pretending it's not going to happen, and when they do happen, there's the potential there for, to destroy our lives one way or another. So it's just about having those uh, confronting conversations with ourselves. But being gentle in the process as well. Getting those two levels of comfort. Either, wow, I can handle this. And go hard at it. Or actually, no, something will destroy my life. It's not exactly the outcome I want. I'm going to step away from it and find a different way to achieve the same thing. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Well, that is Derek McManus. And you can see now why the Australian Centre for Human Durability uh, is very, very busy. You are sought after for your stage speaking and you are certainly sought after for training and development. And I know that you have a, a new training program coming up on human durability, which yes. I'm very much looking forward to seeing. Yeah, thank you. I, mm. Most of my training that I do is uh, for corporates and I travel the world. Uh, I'm going to Vietnam in uh, May. Um, but I've now started running my public programs. Mm. And I have one of those coming up in Adelaide on the 25th of March uh, here in Adelaide. And uh, people can get onto my website, give me a phone call, send me an email, uh, and I'll send them out some details. Without Fantastic. any expectation that they do turn up, I just send them the information. Brilliant. And I'm sure that uh, anyone who does make the time and effort to go will benefit enormously. Yeah. So it's, it's also advertised on Eventbrite. Excellent. Human durability. So look up Derek McManus, D-E-R-R-I-C-K, McManus, M-C-M-A-N-U-S. And so that is the Achiever Network podcast for today. I hope you've enjoyed it and got lots of value. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today, Absolute Derek. pleasure, Sharon. Absolute pleasure. Your reporter skills uh, in interviewing obviously came to the fore. Thanks, <laughs> thanks so much. Thank you, Derek. Bye for now. That's a wrap for episode six of the Achiever Network podcast and certainly hoping that you enjoyed today's show with Derek McManus, who's certainly an impressive individual with uh, an extraordinary history of human dur durability. Now, if you've enjoyed the podcast, I would love it if you could like the podcast and certainly if you could share it, that would be absolutely fantastic as well. And please do make contact with me if you have any ideas uh, for future episodes uh, and uh, if you'd like to get in touch with either of us. So my details are uh, 1300402722 in Australia. That's my phone number. And you can certainly reach me at Sharon at Achievernet.com. Sharon at Achievernet.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, yes, do stay in touch and keep listening to the Achievernet. Network Podcast.